I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a lot of rhymes with Johnny, but here it is, Stage Door Johnny. Hello, hello. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. Well, have I got a royal treat for you this week, because my guest has written and directed only three movies but it's okay to only have written and directed three movies when they're all masterpieces, in my opinion. You can count on me, Margaret, and Manchester by the Sea. Manchester by the Sea won in the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. He was nominated also as Best Director. His plays are modern American classics like Lobby Hero, This Is Our Youth, The Waverly Gallery, Starry Messenger. He is one of the very greatest writers working in theatre and film today. He is Kenneth Lonergan. Kenny came to the West Village apartment I was living in in New York recently, this May. Uh, in fact, I think you can hear some New York coming through the window ambiently. And while he nibbled on a sustaining pastry, we met quite early in the morning, we began with a quick chat about what a big weekend it was for his wife that weekend. His wife is the actress, the brilliant actress, who's been in a ton of Kenny's plays, Jay Smith Cameron, who plays Jerry on Succession. And it was the the uh, finale weekend of Succession. It felt like the whole world was waiting for the outcome of what was going to happen with the the Roy family. Look, genius is an overused word, but I think there's a real one here. Stage door, Johnny Company, this is your Act One beginner's call. Mr. Lonergan and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginner's. Tony Jay. How's she doing? Big weekend for her. I know, I know. The finale of Succession, in which she plays... I know. Magnificently. Yes. Uh, Jerry. Well, Nick Braun, who plays um, Greg, he likes to own bars, and he's a co-owner of several bars, so we're going to go... Some of the cast are going to go to one of back room in Nick Braun's bar, <laughs> where there's apparently a television set, and watch it on Sunday, and everyone's going to be upset. It must be an extraordinary thing to be in the show that the planet is waiting on the resolution of. Uh, yeah, we don't have a great sense of that because being inside it, like she knows it's a big hit and it's changed her whole life and it's a great show and it's been a great experience. But I don't know if you had this experience, but you never quite gauge. You can tell when you're what you're in isn't doing well, but when it's doing well, I know it's very hard to see how big it is. Even if it's a close friend, like I just don't have the same sense of it. I mean, I know it's a huge hit, but I'm always surprised to see, like, we were in 
London and Oxford, and uh, they're just mooning over her. I'm not surprised, but still surprised. I mean, they're all waiting for the next episode, and it's been amazing. And it's just stars a lot of the Kenny Lonigan yep. company. <laughs> Some of them. Right. Kieran Culkin, who's been in, what, three of you? Kieran. Well, yeah. Kieran plays Roman. He's been in, yeah, that's right, two plays in a movie. Right. And Jay, of course. Jay, of course. And Matthew McFadden was in Howard's End, which I wrote. <laughs> yeah. And are adapted, rather. And uh, who else is, uh, I think that's it for me. Is Jay like, Fuck the theater. No, not at all, but she's she's really enjoying this. So, no, I think she'd be in another play. She's been in so many plays. She's been doing theater yeah. since she was 22. Yeah. Well, since she was in high school. So I think I think she's now wanting something very challenging or fun. Are you like, fuck the theater? Not at all. I'm the... <laughs> no, no, I'm really not. If I could execute all the ideas I have, I'd be busy for the rest of my life. So huh. we'll see if I can execute any of them. Well, this for exactly. theater maybe fuck me. Yes, hope not. Uh, yeah, no, no. So I'm no, I'm not at all. I've just been doing. I've been writing a television show and a film, two films, and I've been research. Excuse me, researching a play for a long time, and then I have other plays I want to do. So I have a lot of things I want to do. Mm. It's better than I four years ago. I didn't have any thoughts at all. Forgive me for diving into this, but I'm always so intrigued, and maybe it's impossible to sort of talk about it. But my friend. Jez Butterworth describes these 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 writing plays, his plays, he writes a lot of screenplays too, as these pregnancies. Or sort of virgin when when he's inseminated, <laughs> as it were. That's the torturous metaphor. He has no choice but to go to term with it. Yeah. Generally. And he has no sort of say, crucially, in when that's going to strike him. When yes. he is going to be, as it were, inseminated. Yes. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, does that ring any bells? Yes. Leaving aside the disgusting so metaphor, and we know there's no such thing as a virgin birth. I'd say that's pretty fair. I mean, what happens to me sometimes is I have an idea, and then I'm sure it's ready to go, and then not, not, and then I hit a dead end, or I had a I get a leaden feeling in my stomach when I sit down to write it and I don't know why and then six months later it'll start coming out it's not all that unconscious I'm thinking about it the whole time and I take notes about it and I make little notes but I don't really understand what makes me you ready to go as opposed to just thinking about something sometimes I think it might be like um, some sort of psychological analog to muscle memory you know when you're like learning to do something you're using all the you're using the dumber part of your brain you're doing it mechanically and then when you start to do it unconsciously, that's when you're actually doing it very well. When I was in England last week, I was I rented a car and I was driving on the for me the wrong side of the road, which I've done before, but the turns aren't so difficult and staying in the correct lane isn't so difficult, but the size of the car, which you know unconsciously when you're driving at home, or I had to guess. So I was always I was afraid I was gonna get hit on the right and consequently I would get the wheels of the left side of the car too close to the left. In fact, I once burst a tire that way in St. Andrews. It's a badge of order. But, <laughs> but then took a long drive to London from Dorset. And after an hour, I wasn't paying any attention to that. And I was instinctively knew how close the cars on the right were. And I, I wonder if that's what they call muscle memory. And I wonder if that's there's some analog in your brain to when you're preparing to write something. I don't know. It has to become a sort of flow state. It gets in the part of your brain that does things without your supervision, right? which is clearly the more deft, agile, and intelligent 
and connected part of your mind. I saw a YouTube that was interesting. It was a kid who was an expert at stacking cups. Like he was a cup stacking virtuoso and he'd have a huge pile of plastic cups. He was about nine and he stacked them so, into a pyramid so fast, like you could barely keep your eyes on his hands. And there was an adult who had never done it next to him who was clumsily, slowly putting the cups on top. And there was they were doing brain scans, the two of them. And the adult, his synapses were firing all over the place because he was struggling and the kid was barely thinking or the the same sensors were barely flashing. Right. We, don't, we don't really know what was going on. But it was I always remembered it because it was so, because we all know the difference between conscious and unconscious effort. When I'm writing something and it's going really well, it very much feels unconscious, like I'm just writing down what I hear. And that's a great feeling. I don't know if it's the same in acting. It is, I think. You can get into that state. John Douglas Thompson, do you know that actor? Mm -mm. By every review that has ever been written about him, the greatest classical actor in America, he's really extraordinary said that she saw a video of uh, a pickpocket talking about the same well, unconscious, you know, he said, so how do you do it? Do you, do you work out whether, whether wallet is hanging or how to, no. Yeah. He said, when I'm close to somebody, when, I, when I'm in any proximity, something else is just taking over. I don't even think about it. And it is the, it's the state that that actors aspire to. You want to try and get to that sort of flow state where you don't feel like your yeah. conscious brain is, is moving. But it's funny because people especially in our profession, the tendency towards mystical thinking. And I don't think it's anything, I don't think there's anything mystical or otherworldly about it. It seems to be a basic uh, function of the human mind in many, in any discipline. You're very fascinated, it seems to me anyway, in your plays and in your movies, with people who aren't in that state, who are very much the opposite of that state. Is that a terrible generalization? No. I mean, it's the people who are constantly second-guessing themselves, whose conscious mind is always interfering with their ability to be able to experience things in the way that we're describing. Is that fair? Yes, I'd never thought of it in those terms. I can think of characters and who answer that description, <laughs> any of them. I also would say, I mean, and this is not, it's your thought, not mine, but I don't disagree with it. I mean, it seems interesting. I, I think there are characters who are trying to do one thing, but what they're really better at is somewhere else. I don't know. I guess everyone's like that. Because while I'm having these wonderful moments of inspiration, I'm riddled with doubts and clumsiness about other things. So I just think it's a function of being a person. But yeah, I suppose so. I mean, specifically, the young people you've written who yes. occur in your work. I'm sorry. I am going to have to refer to my That's notes. Right. First of all, I have COVID brain. But also, I'm doing this play. Yeah. I was about to tell you how disastrous it's been. I don't know if it's like this when you're writing, but but it's like a sort of uh, migraine because I've got to go back and do it tonight I'm yeah. three weeks off it yeah you can't really think about anything it just elbows whether you like it or not every other preoccupation out yeah. of your mind but you said forgive me if this is a ball ache reciting back your half remembered or sometimes not, probably not bastardized if, quotes not if it was very clever yes it, terribly clever and entertaining you said and we're talking about teenagers and, and why you've written a f plenty of them you said in some way a teenager can be, in a play or a movie anyway, a metaphor for a grown-up, which is a half-formed person coping with the world. I agree with myself there. <laughs> <laughs> you did this lovely interview with your friend and colleague, Tommy Gevinson, and she said, do you have any clues to why you're so good at writing young people? And you said, uh, well, no, but I remember that time in my life really clearly. At subsequent times in my life, I couldn't quite tell you what was going on. She says, is that like a trick of memory? And you say, I think when you're embarrassed four years straight, it really sticks with you. 
Yes. A lot very taken by. There's something in Proust where he says, you remember the embarrassments of your adolescence as though they were yesterday. Yeah. Like, And I still am mortified by things that happened. You know, I'm the only one left who remembers them probably, and nobody else probably noticed when they were happening. But I still cringe when I think of things that I said or did. I mean, I do agree with myself about that. I also think that there's something about about adolescence where there's this, you have these series of discoveries of things that really grab you in a way that I think adults have much more infrequently. The idea of a of some kind of a drama or some kind of a romance, it doesn't have to be pleasurable. It can be a pain. Often it's an injustice that you see, uh, seeing your parents in a new horrible light, and then maybe later seeing them in a better light when you calm down, or just the drama of life, which is, I don't think adults do that nearly as much, although some do. When you hear like people talking on the street and you can hear them talking, but you can also know they're showing off in some way. They're playing some kind of stupid part. Like one of my favorites is an older policeman talking to his younger woman partner. And I have that in the play. But one reason is because I've noticed these guys just kind of showing off and this is what you want to do. And I'm like that. One of my, my, I think one of the most, my most favorite quotes of all time and one of the guiding themes of my life in terms of what I am interested in observing is Lou Reed says in uh, that song, which is now escaping me, do 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 that oh, On the wild side. Yes. He says, uh, well, I can't remember exactly what he says. Some people don't act rational. They think they're on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember the entire quote, yeah. even though it's even though I'd say it's one of my guiding <laughs> principles, but I just see it all the time. So I think that's a kind of a holdover from being an adolescent, that sort of sense of the drama of your own life. People who have that sense more developed are much harder to deal with than other people, I think, because they're not you're not talking that they're presenting something that you're meant to react to, but it's not it's not the emotional content that they're actually giving off. Mm. Also they do this other thing that grown ups don't do is that they're kind of experimenting with who they're gonna be and who they are and what kind of person they are. So they go through these rapid series of impassioned changes. I mean, now that I'm older, I'm noticing more of the differences than I used to notice the similarities. And the thing that I think is too bad about pronouns is that they settle into their half-formed strategies and they it's hard to get them to break them or change them. And they're not much better than strategies of a 17-year-old. They're just a little more ingrained and they're a little, there's a path that you work, that you've dug in and you can function in that path, but it's hard to get out of it. Whereas adolescents are jumping from path to path to path. On the other hand, you acquire some kind of sense of not everything is a crisis. It's weird to me because adolescents both deal with the world in the crisis sense that it actually exists and grown-ups don't. As I often think like they're right and we're wrong. Right. They're not like just take it easy, it doesn't matter that much. A lot of things do matter that much. You just abolish racism. Yeah. Like, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. But who's going to say that when they're 50 years old and they say, yeah, unless, they ha unless they're in a position where they have to, where, where it's someone from my demographic can take it or leave it. Like, of course, if, it, if you're the direct, in the direct path of it, it's a little harder to say, oh, no, who cares? I'm fine without any kind of those big changes. So anyway, all adolescents are activists until they get to college and then they decide to become lawyers, as to quote myself, <laughs> uh, in, in my demographic anyway. It's a long answer. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great answer. Let me ask you, how old is uh, your daughter? 21. Okay, so she's moved through that phase. Yeah. Are you still, do you think, in your work, in the work that you're gestating right now, are you still as fascinated by that state as you have been? Um, I don't know that I am as a direct subject, but I uh, I still like writing teenagers. Uh, they're teenagers in what I'm writing now. They're not the main characters, but they're, they're there. 
Yeah, without them being like the target, I'm still very interested in them. Right. Do you, having just had a recent experience of one, do you feel like it's, are there any fundamental changes in that state that you've observed since you were remembering your own adolescence so vividly? Well, one thing I've noticed, I mean, we're not quite out of it yet. I mean, I'll be curious how I feel about it in four or five years. 21 isn't quite out of the, uh, again, in our demographic, it's not quite out of the woods of being an adolescent. For instance, I was just talking to a Israeli classicist who was describing his army experiences, having commanded a tank when he was 19 and all of his men were 18. And I said, my God, that's so young. He said, well, they give you that responsibility and you and you do it. And I, don't, I didn't ask him what the tank was doing, but that's what he was doing. It really depends on what group you're talking about. Your memories of it so, are so vivid. Oh, yes. You yes. said that wonderful thing with Tavi, and you have distilled that in your plays because of those those mortifications or, or just all the things you've just been talking about. I understand. I think what I really learned is to, what it feels like to be on the other side of the divide because when you're a kid, you have a very particular thoughts and attitudes about your parents. Parents tend to be a group you make fun of or a group that you're trying to stay away from. Your whole life is separate from your parents. And when you're a parent of a kid, of an adolescent or any child, then you're at least if you're trying to be involved, your life almost revolves around them or they're a huge part of your life and really a hard learned lesson that you're basically in the background of their life at best. Um, yeah, yeah. You have a healthy cameo in the movie that used to used yeah. to have to lead it, and they need. You know, it, there's some book that I didn't read, but the title was something like "Leave Me Alone and Drive Me to the Store." Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you're there. But I just remember the things we thought and said about each other's parents, and they were pretty much figures of fun, not entirely to be mocked, but we were not the same. And so it's weird to be in that position as an adult. My daughter is very nice to me, but I often feel like least like myself with her because I'm my identity as dad is so unshakable as as it would be and should be. But I think I'm of a group of people that is not comfortable being like dad. I like being da a dad, but I don't feel like the authority figure in the house and the one who knows what to do and the one who says what to do. So all that stuff is very scattered and desultory. And I didn't quite own having the authority of a parent, even though you have to. So. When she thinks of me as dad, I'm like, who, who are you talking about? <laughs> How does she feel about your work? I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask her. I think she she, she grew up with the theater and films, and I know she's very interested in them. And I, that, I think that's a part of our lives, which is sort of off limits at the moment. And I'll be curious what she thinks when she has to say about it when she's older. Um, when she was younger... You know, that was what we did, and she she was interested in it or not interested. She was very interested, in, and she's artistic type herself. I mean, very much so, but I think she's, I don't know. I mean, I remember my father was a doctor and a hospital administrator, and I, I must have gone to his workplace over the course of my life maybe five times. Like, you know, I was kind of proud to see Dr. Lonergan's office and his little nameplate, and he would wear a white coat, which he didn't at all, obviously. And my Stepfather and mother were psychoanalysts, so I never saw them at work, but I had a very good sense of what their jobs were. But Nellie grew up in dressing rooms and on sets and so forth, so I don't, I really don't know. Matthew Broderick has lots of nice memories of going to his dad's dressing rooms when his dad was acting. He really does, yeah. I always find it very moving when he talks about his father. People who do the same thing, I mean, it remains to be seen with your daughter, obviously, but, but I always find it must be terribly hard because of everything we just said for children to appreciate 
their parents in the same profession that they're in, just because of all that you've just been talking about. I think that's very true for some kids. And for, I mean, Matthew wanted to be an actor from the time he was in 10th grade. And it wasn't, I don't think it was ever as, as stressful for him in any psychological way. And then I was the only, I have seven brothers, six brothers and sisters, seven of us. And I'm the only one who ended up going into the arts, although everyone's interested in the arts. But I know that I felt like I had older, brilliant older brothers who seemed to know everything and were good at everything I wasn't. So I was very much wanted to strike a path in some direction where I wasn't competing with them because I always lost when I competed with them. And I still do. <laughs> I mean, my one's a doctor, one's a computer engineer, and they talk to them, they know everything. I mean, I tried, and I just don't know everything. It's hard to keep up. But I wasn't, they weren't artsy. So that was my patch. And I don't know what you do on it when your patch is similar to your parents. I think it's just very hard. I've interviewed a lot of people whose parents were great actors, or and some people who were less successful. And that's always fascinating when you're, the child becomes more yeah. successful in the world in the same area as the. I just find all that very yeah. interesting. Getting out from under our parents and seeing them as human beings is ter- you know, is obviously terribly hard. I very much struggle with that. The other thing I struggle with is what we've just been talking about, this sort of awful one-way street of our children. You know, the sense that my kids are a bit younger than yours, 15 and 14. You know, it's not long away that there will never be a phone call where they call you <laughs> say, Mom, Dad, you know, I, I want to come back for the weekend. And you say, the parent says, actually, you know what, love, I'm just, we're just a little busy. Yeah. We've got other stuff to do. <laughs> I know. Very interesting people to see. <laughs> you will only ever say, God, yes. Or, <laughs> or you don't say, okay, and then you don't show up. Right. I mean, unless you're a real shit. <laughs> right. But you're not, oh, I forgot. Sorry, right. I'm right. busy. Right. Or I got a better offer. Sorry. Right. But the business of training them for independence, which is, I suppose, what everyone says parenting is supposed to be for them. God. And I really try to find that hard. Is a cruel trick of nature, isn't it? You are you are being made more abundant by the existence. And that's my total area of complete, total failure. <laughs> On my part, she's Nellie's actually quite independent, but I think I was overly clingy as a parent. Oh, me too. And I mean, woeful. I can only tell myself, at least she knows we love her. <laughs> if we <laughs> fucked up everything else. But it's also like when animals just are like, bye. Yeah. <laughs> like Jay and I went to uh, Africa this year, which was amazing. We went on safari, so-called, and saw lots of animals. And we had these extremely knowledgeable guides. We saw a lioness with two young lions, and she was sitting there while they were trying to hunt. And the guide said, okay, so there's a water buffalo over there, and he's the lion. The young lion is getting up too soon. The lioness knows to wait. The young lion is, you'll see, the buffalo's going to, he's going to scare him off because he's showing himself too soon, and she'll wait. And Eventually, he'll get the idea to wait. Once he's good at it, she'll leave. And I was like, and never see him again? <laughs> he's <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Uh, although that's not strictly true. They do, they'll stay in prides together if it happens to work out that way. But once they're ready to kill, they're just like, right. Don't call me. No. Yeah, don't come home for the weekend. Talking of the you know, conscious and unconscious and flow states and all that stuff and you know, Mother and stepfather being psychoanalysts. Do you ever dream about your place? Oh, not very often. I've had a couple of ideas that started out as dreams. Not many. Usually in the middle of the dream, I'm thinking this amazing idea for a play or a movie. And then I wake up and it's like you go through a door and the room is 
has a green paint on it or something like that. No, it's not very interesting or something. It doesn't make any sense. But no, I, my, um, this is our youth. My first play that it, that got any tension was um, tried out as a dream. I was sort of both characters. There were two guys from high school that I knew, not really the two that ended up in the play, but the same group of kids. And I was one, the one berating the younger one, but I was also both of them somehow in the dream. And then I woke up and thought, wow, that would be cool to have a play with just adolescents from the Upper West Side in it, because I'd never seen a play with just teenagers in it. There might have been plays, but I'd never seen one. And I thought that would be really theatrical to have this apartment that we all hung out in, and then two adolescent boys. And then that dovetailed into a little scene that I had wrote with a teenage guy and girl coming back for a disastrous date in that guy's apartment. I can't think of another play that started as a dream. I usually have theater dreams where, you know, I don't, actors' nightmares and Do you? Forth. Yes, I do. I had. I mean, I think everybody does, not just actors. You're right. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? It's a sort of common collective memory dream yeah. or something, even if you're a civilian. For sure. Yeah, I mean, just not knowing what you're doing and being yeah. prepared and being caught out. I have a friend who has a very healthy ego, and his actor's nightmare dream goes as follows. This is Frank Puglisi, is a wonderful writer, and we, used to, we were roommates for a long time after college. And um. His dream was that he was at a podium to give a speech to all these important people. He had his speech prepared and he took it to the podium and he opened the, the uh, speech on the lectern and the pages were blank. He was scared for a second and then he just started talking and it went great anyway. At least it is natural brilliance. <laughs> so that is not the kind of actor's nightmare I have. Right. I really want to talk about you. Acting, but I need to point out at this point that you have not just one but two cappuccinos. Yes, I'm Did all, you already drink one. I two thirds of the way. Oh, well, first. Also, some beautiful pastries here, which I ate half of one. It's like one of those scenes in like, Succession that we were talking about, where I'm very happy you, I had a little bit of something because they just leave them. It's a brilliant, it's always brilliant set dressing when they go yeah. into one of those conference rooms, and it's lavishly laid with food that no one touches. No one touches. That will all be sort of thrown. Away. Yeah. One of the things they love about that show is they they live that wealthy life, but it's not particularly celebrated by the no. show. There are many shows and films which is about how rotten and selfish rich people are, but the truth is the film is very celebratory of the of the money and the sex and the high style and the jet setting and while simultaneously it's pretending that they are attacking it. But succession is just it's just what the way they live. Yeah. And they're truly loathsome. But they're not directly loathsome because they have nice things. Like it's not sentimentally contrasting them with people who don't live as well. It's sort of taken as read that everything they're doing to live this life is having horrible impact elsewhere. It's very rare for shows to actually be able to sell the idea that the main characters are awful. Like even Sopranos, which is brutal, he's still pretty lovable. Yeah. No matter how horrible he is, at times you're kind of like impressed that he's so tough or, you know, you just don't really dislike him. I think that's one of the great performances of all time on television or anywhere. But Succession, especially this season, you're really, they're really making the case that how deeply awful they are and how evil they are and how terrible it is for the rest of us that they exist or that that they're living and doing these things. And you feel bad for them, which is, I mean, I think Jesse Armstrong is just a genius the great show, but I'm I'm here to promote myself. Not sure, but a lot of playwrights on the stuff, right? Oh it's yeah, Preble. There are a few others whose names now escape me because yeah. they're bad with names. Sure. It's an amazing writer, the fuller troller critic, and yeah, Frank, Frank Rich, forever atoning for his early career <laughs> <laughs> in the butcher of Broadway. Yeah. Let's go back. Do you remember the first time you were ever in a theater? Uh, there are a couple of possibilities. Mm-hmm. One was Scapino starring Jim Dale in the 70s, Jim Dale. which was great. 
audiences of a certain vintage might remember him in the Carry On movies. Jim Dale was very famously in our End of the Pier sort of naughty this string of sort of franchise movies called Carry On movies. Jim Dale was always the young, sweet one, but he had a huge Broadway career. So Scapino was a farce. It was, uh, and as I recall, it was hilariously funny. I think I saw it twice. Do you remember how old Brigley was? I can't say. I must have, I'm going to say 10 or 11 or something like that. There was a Christmas double bill that my parents always took us to. One of them was Amal and the Night Visitors, which was a story of a shepherd who was nearby when the baby Jesus was born. That, that was sort of the boring one. And then there was another one. But then the second act was a play called Help Help the Globlanks Are Coming. And this was like a body snatchers type play. So there, it was basically about the Globlanks who come and take over people's bodies. They're shaped sort of like the uh, Michelin Tire Man, like they're made of, or like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, like that conical shape. Uh. And I don't remember much about it except that it was a body snatchers like thing. There was an incredible sequence where some one of the characters came in in a very bulky overcoat and you saw the character transform into a blob link in front of your eyes because under the overcoat had the the series of, of kind of what's it called? Life preserver shaped stacked rings and right. and the overcoat came off and the rings popped up over his head and he became a blob link. It was quite scary. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. And in either of those two shows, which the Jim Dale one you saw, Scapino you saw twice yeah. and said it was funny. Did you ever get a feeling like, oh, do you remember any sense that this was, this might be for you? Not then. I, I got interested in being a playwright in around ninth grade, maybe a little earlier. I wanted to be a novelist when I was a little kid. Yeah, you wrote novels from the fifth grade only? Well, yeah, I mean, not, not novels in the fifth grade, but I wrote short stories. I wrote science, a lot of science fiction, and I wrote a tremendous amount when I look back at it. I just, But I also like typing a lot. <laughs> and so we had a first a, a, my mother's a manual typewriter, and then I got a Smith Corona, which was a fantastic typewriter where you slot the uh, yeah. ribbon in, and then you pop it out, and you slot the correcting ribbon in it. Really cool. Do you still type? I gave it up eventually for a few years when word processing was, laptops were fairly new. I would do everything on the typewriter, and then I would do a fair copy on the word processor. And then the first time I ever typed directly into the word processor was the last time I ever used typewriter. And then I tried to go back a few years later and I was like, fuck this, I'm going back to my back to the old typewriter. And I, I gave up after half a page. It was so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it was like you'd out of that flow state. You were driving yeah. in outside of the road again. So writing novels or short stories which became novels and then something made you decide that you wanted to write in a different form. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think I went to a lot of theater as a kid. I was never one of those kids who puts the playbills up in, on the wall. I were right. theater, real genuine theater geeks in high school, although I was one, although I don't, don't think it's geeky to like the theater. But anyway, my grandmother submitted, showed me an ad for a one-act play contest in, in Ojai, California, the Thatcher School National One-Act Play Contest for high school students. And I wrote a play, which was a mostly a monologue ripoff of the movie Network, which I had just seen, which I really liked. Uh, I still, to this day, like if I see something I really like, I sort of unconsciously act it out for a couple of hours afterwards. I'm, I'm very, I was very impressionable that way. And I wrote this play and I sent it off and I won third prize, which was $100, which I was thrilled about. And what had happened was I had, I was always writing something. And I, have, I mean, I wrote hundreds of pages when you're that age and you write hundreds of pages, by the time you get to the end, your grammar and your punctuation has improved so much. The first part of the book is embarrassingly crude. And it's anyway, I always say this, it's sort of a really kind of true. I 
there was so much less to correct in a play script because there's so many fewer words per page I that I thought this is much easier. <laughs> but I really did like the idea. I don't know what attracted me to it. But then, then I had this really tip-top theater teacher named Bruce Cornwell in uh, Walden, our high school, where I met Matthew. And he was just one of these very, very inspiring. And uh, the kids did everything. Um, he he directed the plays, but the kids designed the sets, designed the costumes, every, every, everything. There was, and there was a music teacher, but he wrote a play with me when I was in 11th grade, which at the time didn't strike me as that unusual. But looking back, I mean, he was 26, 27, but it was amazing. It was kind of about his family and we collaborated on it and it was produced and Matthew started it. Then I wrote a one-act play that I directed the following year. And I don't know, I just liked it. And I love being in theaters and I love being backstage and I was in the plays and it's just, I fell in love with the, uh, the process, although that word is an obnoxious word now. <laughs> and I fell in love with the whole, everything about it. It's just, I mean, there's not, nothing's much more fun than being backstage when, when the play is on or when you're rehearsing. It's just really fun. And it's enormous fun to see your play acted well with an audience. It's torture to see it done poorly, but it's really, really thrilling. And even movies for me don't quite touch that, even though I, if you go by what I do, I watch a lot more movies and, and plays. Movies don't quite touch that feeling. They do, but it's not. There's something, you know, everybody says it, the immediacy of the live theater. Everyone's participating in the fantasy a little more. There's, even though movies more naturalistic in what you see, the people are acting in the room with you and you're part of the show because you're the audience. And there's, I mean, you know, you no audience, no play. Like you can't do a play by yourself. You can mm -hmm. shoot a movie and watch it alone. But you can't do theater without a crowd. And not just because they're watching it and you want to be admired by a crowd or, or share your feelings with a crowd, but you can't. It's a it's a cyclonic process where you're putting out something and it's coming back to you and it's going round and round. And when it's working well, it's just amazing. As you know, when you're acting, you can't quite put your finger on it, but what you get from the audience and then seeing that happen and the thrill of imagining, I've, I think I've said this somewhere, but when you Think of like two guys in a room doing this or that in your apartment and you're seeing the room and you're seeing the guys. And then you hand that over to actors, designers, lighting designers, directors, assuming they're all good and and wanting to do participate in the fantasy that you initially created. It's just amazing. Like it's just a thrill. Mm. And movies are a bit more fragmented. I mean, I love movies and I love being a movie director, but it's, I mean, you really love it, but it's not quite the same it doesn't have the same feeling, I guess, that people have when they're playing team sports. Like, you know, you're really in sync with your team and like crowd that's cheering you on. And it's not quite the same, but there's a live action component to it that you just can't beat. And we should have that for the better. On Broadway, which I think is really struggling. It's theater everywhere is at the moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. That was the first act of my chat with Kenny Lonigan. Please come back and join me for act two. You'll want to because he tells me about first meeting his great lifelong friend and collaborator, Matthew Broderick, when they acted together in A Midsummer Night's Dream at Walden School, uh, performing rooftop mafia hits with Matthew and some other school friends. Uh, what he thinks of his own, I think, excellent acting, but Kenny begs to differ. The play of his that he has had the most fun with the difficulty he had getting started as a playwright, and very interesting talking about getting started, trying to write things that are oblique or difficult or unorthodox when you don't have a reputation to back it up. It's fascinating talking about how it seems like people weren't quite ready for his plays until his plays became successful and then people were ready for his plays. I guess it's the story of art or innovative artists throughout the history. Why he doesn't feel his plays will be unfashionable, even though we live in a world of increasingly strident political certainty, and his plays, as I try to explain haltingly badly, I think he's the poet laureate of human uncertainty. Anyway, have a listen. Please come back. He he is one of the very greatest minds of the theatre. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and funny. That's stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He knows that there's no money. Being stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door. 